0: Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. Episode 115, Hatiai's House. An introduction to the homes and people who served Akhenaten, starting with a man who helped to build Pharaoh's new city. Hatiai, a member of the government, has left a wonderful record of his place and life in Akhenaten's new order. Exploring his house we can start to get a sense of how some people, a privileged few, lived in the horizon of Aten. This episode is brought to you by Dave E. and Ellen B., who became two fantastic patrons of the podcast. Also, thanks to Nicholas Dana and Pete Shipp, who made donations via PayPal. Thank you for your support. It means a lot to me that people are willing to contribute to this podcast and the story I'm trying to tell. In my home country, winter is reaching its peak, but the Aten continues to shine, and I have no doubt he does so for your support. As always, I want to thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoy the tale. The year was 1357 BCE. Regnal year 6, under the majesty of nefer Re Waenre wa en Akhenaten, the king of upper and lower Egypt. Across the desert landscape of Amana, dust rose from a dozen major building sites, and for at least a few years, these construction projects were the dominant feature of the new city. Akhet-Aten, the horizon of Aten, was not built in a day, it took many, many months of backbreaking labour and convoluted organisation. The men and women who made that process happen are mostly anonymous, but a few individuals at the top survive to give us a glimpse. Today, I would like to introduce you to the government official named Hatiai. Hatiai, or Foremost, was a member of the administration who served Akhenaten and later Tutankhamun. Hatiai held the title of Imi Kau, or Overseer of Works, which made him a significant cog in the machine. As overseer, he was responsible for organizing laborers, gathering materials, and connecting building sites with the resources they needed. This role made Hatiai essential to the process of constructing and raising Amana's royal monuments. Temples needed stone foundations and shrines, the palace needed columns and plumbing, and different high officials needed stone to embellish their houses and proclaim their status. A man like Hatiai was central to the day-to-day logistics of building and decorating this royal centre, particularly one that was built from the ground up. Although he wasn't the highest official, Hatiai was nevertheless a key member of Akhenaten's government, and a great example of the people who came to this city in obedience to their pharaoh. Hatiai probably moved to Akhet Aten soon after the project started. We know this because his house, which survived until the 20th century, is one of the earliest at the site. It was built close to the River Nile, in a suburb which started near the farmland, and then spread eastward. So Hatiai must have been one of the first settlers, and it's possible that he started living here even before Akhenaten did. While the king stayed in his lavish palaces elsewhere, men like Hatiai had to begin the construction process early. So, one day, Hatiai stepped off a boat at the river's edge, chose a spot for his house, and got down to business. The overseer's day to day responsibilities were many. Hatiai probably spent most of his time with scribes and with foremen above all. The scribes, or accountants, would help him keep track of deliveries as barges of stone arrived from other parts of Egypt. The foremen would report on progress at various building sites, how quickly each structure was rising, how many injuries the workers had sustained, and whether they needed more men or perhaps needed to get rid of some troublemakers. Day by day, Hatiai would have been involved in disputes, issues, and making sure that work was not stalled by anything remotely avoidable. Finally, Hatiai probably had to do regular inspections of building sites, making sure the work was proceeding smoothly, and that the structure was rising according to specifications. Chances are it was a busy life, our man constantly moving around the city and checking up on projects that could be several kilometres apart. Hatiai probably spent a lot of time on his chariot, moving from suburb to suburb and site to site. If you have a job that makes you drive around a city a lot, you may know the feeling. Hatiai was a prominent man, respected and privileged, but his origins are a little bit obscure. We know that he described himself as a humble man, one who came from nothing and rose to prominence on account of royal favour. He called himself a small one of his town and humble of family, carving these words onto a stone stealer which is one of the few surviving artefacts for this man. On that stealer, Hatiai boasted of his achievements and made a point to attribute his success to the one who made it happen. He said, I was humble of family, a small one of his town, but the lord of the two lands knew me, and I was esteemed greatly in his heart. I saw the king in his form as Ray in the secret seclusion of his palace. He exalted me above the nobles, so that I mingled with the great ones in the palace. My lord was content with my speech, while he ignored those greater than me the king says to me the hidden things of his heart when i was in the place of silence and men went abroad in the two lands saying how great is the favouring of hatiai End quote. hatiai claims to have been a little man low in status but thanks to his service and the king's generosity hatiai gained prominence as a privileged confidant of the ruler Pharaoh permitted him to enter the palace, and gifted Hatiai with a place among the powerful and the esteemed. Close to the king, Hatiai's counsel, his good speech, was of great value, and the ruler listened to him above all other men. What a lovely story. Hatiai wasn't being factual here, and he probably wasn't intending this to be accurate as we might understand it. The concept of the little man, quote unquote, raised to greatness by pharaoh's generosity, is kind of a literary flourish or trope of the time. In the late 18th dynasty, many prominent men claimed to have come from nothing and gained prestige by good service and their ruler's approval. They put the king at the forefront of their own biographies, attributing their prestige to the pharaoh's benevolence and support. This was a way of flattering the ruler and demonstrating your loyalty, but it also embellished your own prestige, enhancing your reputation by association with the king. This phenomenon is particularly visible in the reign of Akhenaten, and it is possible that the move to Amana created an ideal environment for smaller men to gain advancement and promotion based on good service. When the king was focused on raising a new city, The men who made that city happen were in a perfect position to benefit. Akhenaten lavished attention on these people. One of the most common artistic scenes of the time is the pharaoh standing at a window dispensing gold and jewellery to his loyal officials. For better or worse, Akhenaten used personal interactions and public reward ceremonies to praise and promote his best servants. It seems that Hatiai was an active participant in this environment. Hatiai speaks of his humble origins, and being raised to prominence by the king. And I mentioned that that wasn't entirely accurate. You see, we actually know a little bit about where this man came from, and we know that Hatiai was anything but obscure. Hatiai, overseer of workers, came from a miniature dynasty of craftsmen, Among his other titles, Hatiai was also the chief of sculptors, and his father also held that title, as did his brother. Hatiai's dad, a man named Ya, was the chief of sculptors before him, and Hatiai's brother, named Sa, or son, held the same title. So, it seems to have been a family occupation. The father passed his craft to his two sons, and the three men each held this prominent position in the hierarchy of artisans. So Hatiai didn't exactly come from nothing. While he may have gained greater prominence under Akhenaten, he certainly wasn't a little man by Egyptian standards. When Hatiai was done for the day, or when he was working from home, he could enjoy the comforts of a large and beautiful dwelling. This house survived until the 20th century, when it was excavated by archaeologists from the Egypt Exploration Society. In the 1930s, they uncovered the ancient home which Hatiai had commissioned here at Amana. Hatiai's house is one of the best preserved in the whole city, and thanks to excavations, we have an unusually detailed idea of how the man lived and the space he inhabited. The house is located just north of the central city, in an area we call the North Suburb. It was built close to the river, next to the farmland, and it must have been one of the earliest constructions in the area, because the city of Amarna started beside the Nile and then expanded towards the east. Since Hatiai has a house close to the farmland, that suggests he was already a prominent official by the time he moved to the city. Hatiai's house is somewhat typical of elite houses at Amana. You could easily take the schematic of this place and use it to show what the average wealthy home looked like. With this in mind, a lot of what I'm sharing today is a mixture of the archaeological material from his actual house, but also larger ideas about elite homes that scholars have gathered from a variety of places. It should be fairly clear when I'm talking about Hatiai's house, And when I'm talking about wider trends, but for those who are interested in the details, I've provided some references on the podcast website. With that in mind, let's explore an ancient home Hatiai's house near the river at Amana. Hatiai lived in a large urban estate. It had a central building, the main home, and a larger space surrounding it with a wall on the perimeter. This estate or compound featured a variety of structures, including storerooms, granaries, servants' quarters, and even a private chapel, a small shrine where the family could worship. Hatiai's estate was spacious, well-appointed, and seems to have catered to a wide range of social and economic functions. In its heyday, it must have been beautiful. Compared to other homes at Amana, Hatiai's house is among the largest. The main dwelling was 289 meters square, while the whole estate, including the courtyards, outbuilding, and the wall, covered more than 2,900 meters square. So this residence was a massive one, imposing, visible, and lavish. Within the wider suburb in which he lived, Hatiai was probably one of the most well-established and prestigious households. Again, this points to his personal status and the favor which Akhenaten bestowed on him when they first moved to the city. Hatiai's house was organized around a central hall, a room within the heart which acted as the hub. This was probably the area where Hatiai conducted most of his day-to-day business. On days when he needed to meet scribes or receive petitions, Hatiai probably stayed in this hall while supplicants came to him. The central room of an Egyptian townhouse was multi-purpose though. When Hatiai was out or away from the city, servants might use this space for different jobs. His wife and her attendants might do weaving here, or a scribe might use the space for teaching, instructing Hatiai's son in language, literature, and mathematics. Apart from the central hall, there is the usual array of rooms that you'd expect. The house featured at least one bedroom on the ground floor, possibly more, and it had various storerooms. And there was probably a toilet somewhere, although the excavation report doesn't identify it. We know from other houses at Amarna that toilets were often built within the compound. The Egyptians didn't often go to a ditch, they preferred privacy if they could. Sadly, Hatiai's outhouse has not been located, which is a shame, The inside of his house was spacious, comfortable, and designed to accommodate a range of activities. It was also beautifully decorated. One of the early priorities among archaeologists, whether in Egypt or elsewhere, was to identify ancient art, to preserve it, and to reconstruct it if possible. The excavators of Amarna were no exception. They took great pleasure in identifying objects or decor that could shed light on the visual and material culture. With that in mind, Hatiai's house was kind of a miniature treasure trove. The original excavation reports devote a lot of attention to the more beautiful objects found here. Among other things, the writers listed objects like a bronze mirror found in the rubble, clothing pins made of bronze and covered in gold, pieces of faience or blue glass which were shaped like cobra heads, and a gold brooch inscribed with the words Aten, Lord of Eternity. There was also a figure of a dog made of green faience, and even some rings belonging to two of Akhenaten's successors. So the house was clearly inhabited for at least 10 years. If Hatiai moved here around the same time as Akhenaten, he remained in this place up until the days of Tutankhamun. But that's a story for another day. Hatiai's house featured a private chapel, which was set up in the northern side of the compound. This shrine took the form of a raised platform with a ramp leading up. Three altars faced towards the east, each one marked by a decorated stela of the deity in question. There was a stela for Aten, of course, and also for Nefertiti, and there was probably one for Akhenaten as well, but that is now lost. Apparently it was destroyed, which, again, is a story for another day. The decorations inside the house were quite lovely. One in particular stands out. Above the main entrance to the house, Hatiai had set up a beautiful stone lintel, which capped the doorway and gave some splendour to his front entrance. This lintel was limestone, and had a flat face decorated with hieroglyphs, palm fronds, and figures of Hatiai himself. The decoration was interesting. To the left and right, beautiful images of Hatiai were shown kneeling, with arms raised in adoration before royal cartouches. The names of Akhenaten, Aten, and Nefertiti dominated the centre of this lintel. And such emblems displayed the overseer's loyalty to the crown, and hieroglyphs all around proclaimed the royal titles, noting how Pharaoh, in his generosity, had given this lintel to Hatiai. Like most servants of the pharaoh, Hatiai knew how to represent himself and how to connect his own prestige with that of the king. Hatiai appears twice to either side, and he is shown in the classic Amarna style of art. He wears a long white robe made of translucent linen, which flares and bunches up at the waist, almost like ruffles. Hatiai has a pot belly, like most human figures of the time, and he wears short black wigs, broad necklaces, and bunches of flowers sticking out of his collar and his hair. Just like we saw in the royal palaces, images of flowers, of growth, seem to be particularly prominent in the visual expressions of Amana. This decorated lintel was a major find when first excavated and it featured prominently in a video which was recorded by the Egypt Exploration Society reporting on the excavations of Amarna. You can see Hatiai's house being uncovered, and this beautiful lintel being removed to the storage facilities. It's a fascinating video, and it's available on YouTube. I've provided a link in the episode description for those who are interested. The limestone lintel was just one of many pieces of stone which Hatiai installed in his house. Hatiai's home is remarkable for having an abundance of carved stone used in the doorways and foundations of the dwelling. Every threshold, and even the door frames, were made of limestone, which was a big deal. Although Amana has plenty of quarries nearby, it still required a lot of effort to obtain stone in large quantities. When you think about how much stone was probably being used in the city, it's remarkable that Hatiai was able to siphon some for his own house. The stone blocks were in good condition when excavated, to the point that the excavators could actually rebuild one of the doorways, raising the blocks back into their original position in order to photograph. Looking at this photo, which I've put on the website, you really get a sense that the house had some truly imposing entrances, Many visitors must have been impressed by the abundance of stone in this dwelling, and what it said about Hatiai's place in society. Perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that Hatiai, the overseer of works, was able to secure an unusually large amount of stone for his personal residence. Spending his days in a role connected with resources, labour, and deliveries, Hatiai probably had friends and connections among the various stonemasons and their foremen. With those kinds of relationships, not to mention the public favour of Pharaoh, Hatiai was able to access more stone than the average official. Most of his colleagues had to make do with just a couple of stone embellishments, but Hatiai, the foremost, the chief of workmen, was able to get the very best materials for himself. In an economy like Egypt's, where certain resources were almost monopolized by the crown, it makes sense that the man who procured those resources was able to get quite a bit for himself. It's hard to tell if this is corruption or if he had permission, but either way, the lavish stone entrances were a big win for our man Hatiai. So Hatiai's home, his physical dwelling, was lavish in many ways. But before we leave it, let's take a moment to explore the other parts of this residence. The house itself only occupied a small section of the estate. Like many wealthy Egyptians, Hatiai used his dwelling as the centre of a larger social and economic network. And to accommodate that, his compound featured a number of spaces and structures used for different purposes. The eastern edge of Hatiai's estate was devoted to food production. Here, a wide courtyard featured two granaries, four ovens, and four magazines, rectangular storerooms used for food or tools. The food would be prepared almost entirely in this area. A worker could draw ingredients from the storage facilities, cook them in ovens, and bring them into the house quite quickly. The original excavators had an amusing comment about this. When they reported their reconstruction of the kitchen area, they made a point of preempting criticism by saying, quote, From this eastern court a service door led into the house. By this the meals would be carried in. And it is no good objecting that the meals would be cold because our meals on site are carried down to the dig in a wooden box, often as much as two miles, and they arrive too hot to be eaten. I like that the authors felt the need to make that point. The distance between the kitchens and Hatiai's inner house is not very far, about 10 metres. Any servant bringing in food would have no trouble setting it down before the master, ready, hot and fresh for the eating. Hatiai, and his family, probably had easy access to hearty, comforting food. So the eastern side of the compound, the one furthest from the entrance, was used for food storage and preparation. Over on the western side, a visitor would find themselves entering another yard, one that was almost as large as the house itself. The western court was dominated on one side by a large open space. Presumably this is where people would wait before being admitted inside to meet Hatiai. Unfortunately, we don't know much about this space. The original excavators mostly cleared the area to uncover the physical dimensions, and didn't record any objects specifically. Certainly, they didn't do the kind of microscopic analysis which modern teams will pursue, so we're a little bit in the dark about what this part of the compound was used for. On the northern side of the estate, the entrance was defined mainly by the servants' quarters, a sort of second house where Hatiai's attendants may have resided. This was right next to the gateway, so the servants could come and go without disturbing the main home, and any visitors had to pass by a checkpoint before they could access Hatiai's dwelling. Incidentally, you'll find the same sort of layout in modern houses in rural Egypt and Sudan. Compounds with controlled access are very common in this part of the world. Lastly, we should try to imagine what the house looked like back when it was still new. Hatiai's residence was at least two stories tall, maybe more. Only the lower floor survives today, but traces of the staircase were excavated, which point to a second level covering all or part of the building. These stairs were on the eastern edge of the house, and they were made of wooden poles stretched between the ground and the upper floor. A layer of mud bricks sat on top of the poles and gave the staircase its steps. We're lucky that these survived because they quite often do not. Termites tend to eat the wood, and the mud bricks may be indistinguishable from a collapsed wall. So Hatiai's house was quite fortunate in its preservation. Outside, the house probably would have been painted white, mud bricks adorned with a whitewash, which seems to be the default design for ancient Egyptian homes. Hatiai might have done that as well. If you were looking at the house from outside, you would probably see it as a white box-shaped construction. Windows would punctuate the walls here and there, usually in the shape of small rectangles high above the ground. When freshly painted, the two-story townhouse may have been a shining beacon in the center of the compound. With servants and guests coming and going, and the brightly painted stonework proclaiming the owner's wealth, Hatiai's house was a lavish, beautifully appointed home. Hatiai's house is a major landmark of the Amana cityscape and it is one of the best preserved of the early phase of construction, or at least it was. Today, the house is lost, modern agriculture has expanded over this area, and the need for living families to acquire their food has obliterated the traces of an ancient one. Which is a shame, but we can be grateful that the house was thoroughly documented, in text and in video, back in the 1930s. Hatiai came to Amanā, Akhet Aten, soon after the royal foundation. Quite possibly, he was among the very first wave of settlers who migrated to the royal city. As an overseer of works and a chief of sculptors, Hatiai was intimately involved in the massive process which saw a whole community rising on the desert's edge at a once empty location. He was probably in the thick of it from day one, organising the thousands of small tasks which could bring a cargo of limestone, a delivery of mud bricks, or a team of workmen to the places they needed to be. For his efforts, Hatiai gained prominence at the court, recognition by the pharaoh, and wealth enough to live in a comfortable, beautifully decorated home. He was, no doubt, one of the big men in this community. We don't know what happened to Hatiai exactly. He definitely lived at Amana throughout the reign of Akhenaten, and when that pharaoh died, Hatiai continued to serve the successors who came afterward. With that, though, the trail goes cold. It's possible that when he eventually died, Hatiai was buried at Thebes. A small cache discovered at Thebes in 1896. Included the body of a man named Hatiai who was connected with a temple of Aten. The body was in the right time period, but that man was a scribe, and our Hatiai is never recorded as a scribe, so it could be two different individuals with the same name. Unfortunately, none of the tombs at Amana are identified as belonging to Hatiai, so we don't know where or how he intended to be buried. With that, his ending is a mystery, but we will see him again before the Amana period is over. Next time, on the History of Egypt podcast, we have another side episode. You see, Hatiai may have been the overseer of works, but he probably didn't spend that much time getting his hands dirty. Well, I would like to tell the other half of that story. Some of the information we have for builders, quarrymen, and construction practices at Amarna, discerned from the archaeology. In episode 115b, we will take a short detour to see how the labourers built Amana so quickly, where they got their materials, and what kind of life they led. That is episode 115b, Building Quickly, releasing very soon. Stick around after the break for a short epilogue. But first, I'd like to extend an extra offering of gratitude to Linda and Michael, my priest-level supporters on Patreon. Michael, Linda, you rock. Your support is more than generous, and I am incredibly grateful. Cheers. Hatiai spent a good ten years at Amana living through the majority of Akhenaten's reign in this city. Later in Hatiai's life, when he may have risen in rank or prestige, the overseer got an opportunity to embellish his house slightly. What he did was essentially an ancient form of renovations. Originally, the entrance to Hatiai's house was located on the western side of the dwelling. You approached it from the main courtyard, and went up a small staircase to the doorway. Hatiai eventually decided that this was unsatisfactory, and he moved his entrance around to the northern side of the building. During the 1930s, the excavators observed that the original entrance had been hidden away by a wall, and then a new one had been constructed to the north. It seems that Hatiai wanted to make his visitors go around the side of his building in order to access the main entrance. It's not exactly clear why he did this, but there is a good indication when you consider what was next to the new doorway. On the northern side of Hatiai's house, the man had constructed a private chapel, a small podium with a ramp leading up to stelae that proclaimed the beauties of Akhenaten, Nefertiti and Aten. This chapel was close to the northern side of the building, and when the entranceway was on the west, guests would not have seen it. But Now that the doorway was moved, anyone waiting to come into Hatiai's house would have seen the chapel right next to his main entrance. It's possible, just possible, that Hatiai moved his entrance in order to ensure that anyone visiting his house, particularly prominent officials or men of great status, would see his lovely little chapel next to the main doorway. Why would he do this? Well, It's possible he wanted to show off a nice new construction that he had added, or perhaps he wanted to publicly reaffirm his loyalty to the ruling regime by showing off the chapel that he had constructed for worshipping the family. In the same way that public houses like bars might include a portrait of the monarch if they live in that kind of society, it's possible that Hatiai wanted to advertise his loyalty to the king by making sure anyone who visited his house saw the chapel he had constructed. Whatever his motivations, it's interesting that Hatiai did this, and it's wonderful that we are able to observe it in the archaeological record. Small changes like this emphasize the fact that ancient Egyptian houses were not static, permanent things. The owners were constantly changing them, tweaking them, either to reflect their new needs, or even just for the sake of a change. Hatiai was like any homeowner, he enjoyed his dwelling, and he wanted it to be as nice as possible. Sometimes, that involved altering it. Along with those renovations that moved the entrance from the western side of the house up to the north, Hatiai also had to adjust his parking space. Hatiai owned a chariot, we know he did, and he had to build a small stable on the western side of his compound. Just outside the main gateway a small area was set aside for stabling the horses and for storing his chariot. This area was surrounded by a brick wall, so that it was hard to access unless you were the owner. This chariot parking space was identified by the original archaeologists, and it gives an amusing glimpse of the lifestyle of this ancient man, and an image of Hatiai arriving outside his gateway in the evening, jumping down off his chariot and letting a porter take the horses and cart away. Little touches like these are what make archaeology come alive for me. Glimpses of Hatiai's garage, so to speak, are a permanent reminder of the man, his life, and his little habits day by day.